Hello and welcome to Battleground. I'm Alex Hannaford. I'm producer Pete. Final episode today. What have you got for us? Final episode, Pete, is something that sort of permeates these culture wars that we've been talking about in previous episodes, and that's evangelical Christianity. Evangelical Christians. Evangelical Protestants. Evangelical voters. Evangelical Christians. Evangelical white people. Abortion is back in the news because the Supreme Court is back in the news, and the left don't want the Trump nominee, Amy Coney Barrett, to be confirmed because they think that Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion in the United States, is in jeopardy. Gay marriage as well. They think the Supreme Court are ultimately going to roll back. Hard-fought freedoms and protections for the LGBT community. Obergefell and Hodges, which was the law that sanctioned same-sex marriage in the United States. And they think that's under threat as well. And it all kind of comes back to the evangelical vote. Do you think there's an attack on Christian values in this country? There has been since the devil became the devil. And this came up in past episodes, but the white evangelical population backed Trump in very large numbers, didn't they, in 2016? Shocking numbers. I mean, we heard in a previous episode that more voted for Donald Trump than did George W. Bush when he ran. And don't forget, George W. Bush is an evangelical Christian Trump is not. And who are you speaking to today to talk about these issues? Well, I wanted to know why. And so we're going to be talking to a woman called Lindsay Kane. She used to be a very prominent member of the evangelical church in Texas, and she's got a pretty remarkable story to tell. And you actually know Lindsay personally, don't you? I do. Um, I met her through my wife, Courtney, who has known Lindsay since childhood. Lindsay has, I'm not going to sort of give too much away, but Lindsay has a very, very powerful story, which we're going to sort of kick off with. And then because of her position uh, as part of this kind of, you know, evangelical Christian church, she's perfectly poised to talk about how it relates to politics and the election. We've structured it slightly differently, haven't we, in this episode? So the first half is all about Lindsay and her time in the evangelical church and her experiences. And then the second half is, is back to politics and, and the election. Yeah, exactly. And we did that for a reason. I think that her story is so powerful, but it also sort of sets her up and kind of introduces our audience to, to Lindsay. And so they kind of know why. Why would we ask her then about um, the evangelical vote and what that means? And, and what she's got to say actually on that in the second half of the interview is pretty eye-opening, actually. All right, let's take a listen. Let's do it. Hi, Lindsay. Hello, Alex. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm amazing. I'm just so glad to uh, get to be talking to you today. Well, I thought we'd start with some drama. <laughs> um, yes. Something happened to you in the church. You got essentially sort of excommunicated, kicked out of your church. Tell me about that. Yes, I I actually got kicked out of several churches. Uh, so I think that's what I'm most proud of, right? Not just one church, but many, many different churches. And essentially was kicked out of the entire Southern Baptist Protestant evangelical world. It was not something that I had necessarily expected. It did not happen the way that I had anticipated but in hindsight, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. You know, I, I could no longer 
identify or align with what was important to the evangelical community. And uh, I felt like every day that I stayed in that world, I was not being authentic and I was lying essentially. When when was this, Lindsay? What year was did this happen? 2009. Okay, 2009. And before we get to the how and why, let's rewind. I want to know a bit about the world that you grew up in. Um, it was a particularly sort of conservative Christian church. Can you sort of describe to me what where that was and what that was, what that looked like? Absolutely. Um, I grew up in Midland, Texas, so you, you can't get any more conservative than West Texas, you know, that's where the Bush family lived. And, uh, you know, my my dad was George Bush's Bible study teacher. I mean, we're talking in the throes of evangelical Christianity and went to church since I can remember. So I was going to church more days than I wasn't, probably even in utero, and uh, went to a Bible church and then a Southern Baptist church, but grew up in that world of more conservative fundamentalism and very evangelical. People listening to this sort of outside of uh, the Bible Belt, maybe abroad in, in Europe, maybe maybe don't have an idea of what that looks like. They, you know, in, in the UK, for example, if you are identifiers, sort of Church of England, really for a lot of people that might just mean going to church at Easter maybe and, and, and at Christmas to get your little Christingle orange with the candle in it. And that's pretty much it. It's very different in the Bible Belt. Can you give me some yes. idea of what that meant in terms of sort of outlook and, and, and all the rest of it? I'm, I, I'm thinking of things like, you know, did people around you believe in evolution? Did, um, did you have Gosh, gay no. friends? Oh, goodness, no. I mean, from as early as I can remember, kind of what you heard at the pulpit, I mean, it, whether it was Wednesday night, you were in church on Wednesday nights, you were in choir, you were immersed in this culture. And no, we had no gay friends and we did not, we would not call them gay. We would call them homosexuals, mm. right? There was this exclusivity gospel of us and them. Mm. And I think there were a lot of loving people in the different churches that I was with. And my family is extremely loving. Mm. And I was very fortunate to have extremely loving parents. But you get the messages, even if it's not from your parents or necessarily the pastor, while being in that culture, you get the messages of evolution is a sinful ideology that you cannot believe it. If you believe that, you can't believe in Jesus. Mm. There's this uh, exclusivity gospel of Jesus is the only way to heaven, and anyone else that does not subscribe to this specific type of theology will burn for an eternity in hell. Mm. So a lot of it was about fire insurance. What can I do to make sure I end up in heaven when I die? And what can I do to make sure that I am good? I check all the boxes. Mm. You know, I vote Republican. I'm a straight uh, female who's married by a certain age. And um, I just thought that's what life was like. At some point, I'm guessing now that while you were in church, you or other people found out that you could sing. Yes, I never stopped singing. I was pretty much always singing uh, since I was little. And when you're in church, and that's really your world, that's your culture, I never did school choir. I did church choir. And I started, you know, singing, and I had a solo or two. 
But it was really when I got into high school, we moved from Midland to Austin Mm. uh, because of my dad's job in the middle of my junior year in high school. And the basketball gym was closed. I had no friends. So I picked up my mom's old classical guitar. I think it had five strings (laughs) and started teaching myself how to play guitar and was leading worship at our youth group and uh, at church, you know, within just a few months. You were writing songs. Yep, writing songs, singing them, and then uh, recorded my first album when I was 18. I see you wandering, looking so afraid, trying to disguise the shame. He's in both places, with all of our voices, he understands them all. No matter how deep and dark the trail goes. So um, this became pretty big, didn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in those evangelical circles, it is very easy for people to start realizing that, okay, this is an up-and-coming worship leader, or this is a new contemporary Christian recording artist. So yes, I went to college, I went to um, Texas A&M, continued singing, writing, recording, and was touring. So I would tour on the weekends, go to school during the week, and the local following became regional, eventually became national. And throughout college, I was able to, you know, record, I think, four more albums, signed various contracts with conferences and and taught and spoke and sang all around the country and then different parts of the world. And then I toured full time for six years. That's all I did for my job, made a really good living wow. and, you know, was really living the dream uh, in those kind of circles, specifically the Southern Baptist evangelical community, because those were the churches that had the budget to be able to pay someone like me and fly in my whole band to lead worship at a huge event. You know, we're talking jumbotrons, you know, big crowds, smoke machines. And the rain. How many people would you be playing to? What's the sort of biggest number of people you think you play to? Gosh, probably, I mean, maybe 10,000. So, so, you know, I'm, I'm no, you know, Taylor Swift or anything like that, but man, in that world, the the people I shared a stage with, it was it was a big deal. Mm. It was a big deal, and the bigger that my career got, uh, just the more miserable I truly was internally in okay. my heart. Yes, I want to know about that. So something happened. Yeah, something did happen, and uh, it had been happening. It actually had been happening since I was born. Mm-hmm. There's a really big problem when you are gay. And in the evangelical Christian community. And so that was where the rubber met the road, so to speak. Mm. Um, You know, I I knew from a young age, not that I had the language to talk about it, but I knew that I was different. I knew I was not like my, you know, friends. And uh, looking back now, I know that this was something that I was 
created, you know, with, or, Mm. you know, my sexuality is is such an integral part of who I am. It's not all of who I am, but it's a big deal about who I am. And I knew from a very young age, probably even, you know, eight, that uh, homosexuality was a sin. Not only it was a sin, but it was the sin of all sins, the greatest one, right? And I never looked into, well, I wonder what really God thinks about this. I never asked questions about wait, Jesus didn't even say anything about this. No, I was totally giving into really the brainwashing. Um, And I knew that that was not an option. So in the evangelical community, it's called same-sex attraction. So you will not hear, you know, gay, LGBTQ plus. No, it's same-sex attraction. And it is a, it is a um, curse. It's a, a thorn in the side of devout, loyal Christians. And that is how I felt. I felt like I had been just one of these people that I'm going to have to die alone because I know for certain I can't, quote, give into the same-sex attraction. Um, And so I came out to myself when I was 17. That's the first time that I realized, oh, my gosh. Mm. I even remember saying to myself, "I, I think I'm a lesbian. And the very next thought was, okay, We've got to fight this. Mm. I've always been a fighter. So I started ex-gay therapy. I started uh, ordering CDs from Exodus International and immersing myself in the ex-gay culture, which is another word for that is reparative therapy. And I prayed every single day that, you know, God would make me straight. That's what I thought was just the end-all be-all. Had you told anybody not one person knew until um, kind of in my mid-20s, and nobody suspected. I, you know, I I know this is not on video, but I don't, quote, look the part, Mm. right? A lot of people say, but you're so pretty, which is a whole nother conversation. And I I played up the girly part because I never wanted anybody to know or suspect anything. So I was actually quite homophobic. Mm. I remember being in college early on in college and one of my best friends came out to me and I actually said these words to her. I'm just so sad that I won't see you in heaven. This is how deep I was into that culture and into kind of the deception, Mm -hmm. you know, that caused me to hate myself for the majority of my life. How did you come out and when? Yeah. So um, there was a night, which was really a turning point for me. And I was uh, 21. I'd just broken off an engagement. I thought that I was going to be, you know, able to get married and stay loyal. And then that would give God time to change me. And um, I remember there was a night I was sitting on the couch next to my fiance, but my best friend was on the other side of me. And I was totally crazy about her. Mm. And it just, I realized, you know, nothing has worked. And I went to bed that night and I I prayed a prayer that in hindsight is so painful and just crushing, but I prayed that God would kill me in my sleep or wake me up straight. I wanted to die and I didn't know how to make it stop. I didn't know how to make the pain stop. And I woke up that next morning, thank God that he didn't answer my prayers. I don't think that's how it works anymore, but back then... um, that's the morning I woke up and I said, I've, something's got to give. Right. And I started a journey. It was a long journey, Alex, but I was able to begin walking alongside, you know, 
really like my higher power. I really had to kind of let go of all of these things I'd been taught and dig in for myself. And I quickly came to realize that these scriptures that had been used against me in the Bible and that had convinced me that I was destined for the fiery pit of hell, they were so grossly misinterpreted, taken out of context. But as I'm getting more and more comfortable with reconciling my faith and my sexuality, my career is blowing up. Mm. And so- Oh, it's getting it's find- getting bigger. <laughs> yes. So the, the bigger my career got, the deeper into the closet I had to go. Mm. Like I was touring full time and I met- my partner, so who's now my ex-wife, but we fell in love. She was my tour manager and drummer. Mm. And I realized it was the most, it was such a beautiful God honoring love. And we realized, you know what? We cannot be in the closet anymore. I knew I could not do this anymore. I was getting sick. Mm. I was hardly able to travel and tour and make it through a set without having to lay down in, in backstage in the green room. And so we made a plan. We knew that it would impact everything. I knew that I would lose my career. I knew that it would be a big deal. And so we decided first to tell uh, to tell a family member that we trusted, that we thought would be loving and supportive. It's the first person we told. And unfortunately, you never know how people will react. And, uh, and this individual was not only not supportive, but um, began outing me prematurely. Uh, and so I was not able to come out the way that I wanted to. Mm. I was not even able to come out to my parents. This individual called my dad at his office and told him. And so it was very hard for my family and, and they took it in stride, did the best they could. But, you know, within about three weeks of telling this, uh, individual, I had lost everything. I was booked about a year and a half out. Um, deposits were sent back to me. Uh, my entire tour schedule was canceled. I had attorneys from from various entities calling me and cyberbullying. My my albums were mailed back to me from stores. Wow. Any songs that were in circulation on radio were were pulled off. It was it was truly traumatic. For anyone listening who's got sort of tears in their eyes like me right now. (laughs) Um, Aw, thank you. That's so sweet. (laughs) I've cried a lot, uh, a lot of tears and and told this story enough times, you know, that that I'm able to get through it without crying. Thanks to a lot of therapy um, and and quite a bit of wine. But (laughs) I wouldn't trade it for the world, Alex. I would not trade it i wouldn't change how it happened well th- this is where i was going so it's not it's not got a terrible ending this part of the story right no it's it's such a beautiful ending of redemption and finding my freedom you have um kiddies you had quite a <laughs> uh, during the pandemic you got married again i uh, my wife and i divorced uh, about three years ago, I swore I'd never get married again. <laughs> just going to focus on the kids. You know, marriage is is uh, a farce and love is cruel. And, <laughs> and then I healed and uh, and learned a lot about myself and met Bree, who is my wife, my lovely wife, woman of my dreams. Met her on a lesbian dating <laughs> app. It really was love at first swipe. And we met later that night and... Uh, Gosh, just absolutely fell head over heels in love. And we had this amazing wedding planned, our dream wedding. 
uh, scheduled for April 10th, which was actually Good Friday because nothing says, you know, happy Easter. And he has risen like a good old lesbian <laughs> wedding. But uh, obviously, you know, we were watching the pandemic and we planned an entirely new wedding. Our wedding planner had given us the idea of getting married at a drive-in movie theater. And Brie and I said, that sounds insane. Let's do it. <laughs> and then somehow it went viral. On a quiet Tuesday night in Buda, Doc's drive-in movie theater is filling up. Uh, do you have popcorn? I mean, it's not lost on any of us that we're in the midst of a global pandemic, and we don't want to take that lightly. But what's playing tonight isn't something normally seen on the big screen. This is Bree and Lindsay's wedding day. Hashtag pop-up pandemic wedding. Champagne. Wedding guests in their cars. I'm so excited. Ready to celebrate the brides. Oh my gosh. I can't believe that we've done this. (laughs) And we pulled it off. We were in the New York Times and People Magazine and on the Today Show. And it was just (laughs) insane. It was bananas. (laughs) That's amazing. So, um... Okay, let's move on to the election. According to a recent Pew survey, white evangelical Protestants overwhelmingly support President Trump. 78% approve of his job in office, while 18% disapprove. We learned in an earlier episode of this podcast that more evangelical Christians voted for Trump in 2016 than voted for George W. Bush, who actually is an evangelical Christian. And it was a statistic that I found pretty astonishing. People in the UK and abroad may not understand how you can be Christian and very right wing. Why did they vote for Trump? How is this even humanly possible? Because he is getting the job done in their mind, Hmm. whether it was intentional or unintentional, a very strong pact and agreement was made between the evangelical Christian leaders who now, you know, lots of them serve on uh, his religious advisory board, but it's because he's the guy that's going to get the agenda accomplished. And what I mean by that is what we're seeing now, right? Appointing, uh, Appointing Supreme Court justices who will rule in favor of you know, the two kind of main points that that have become an obsession in evangelical Christianity, which is, um, you know, protecting life from conception and then protecting the institution of marriage as being between a man and a woman. No hints, no previews, no forecasts. Um, that had been the practice of nominees before her. That's really too bad because it's rather a fundamental point. You identify yourself with the justice that you, like him, would be a consistent vote to roll back hard-fought freedoms and protections for the LGBT community. And what I was hoping you would say is that this would be a point of difference where those freedoms would be respected. And you haven't said that. I'd say most evangelicals believe three major things that have caused them to align so loyally with Trump that has thrown all morality out the window. Values no longer matter. None of that matters. So three things that I've really boiled it down to. Number one, they believe God chose Trump, that God anointed and appointed Trump to be the president of the United States. I am the chosen one. Somebody had to do it. There's this belief in evangelical Christianity that the hidden hand of God is operating behind the scenes and is 
integral in each transition of leadership. So if they believe this, right, Trump had a biblical mandate from God. Trump is is our answer. Trump is God's answer for an off-course nation. He's our savior. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing that I realize people don't know, because I asked my own wife, I said, have you ever heard of this? She goes, no, that sounds insane. But this is something that I grew up learning and believing, and that is that, you know, Trump the way that, that a lot of evangelicals see him is that he is the Cyrus the Great in today's world. So a little bit about Cyrus without going into a history lesson, 6th century BC, emperor, he made Persia great. And the Bible recognizes Cyrus's role in the preservation of God's people and his role in this divine uh, redemption plan. So God anointed Cyrus, according to the Bible, to liberate the Jews from bondage. Now, Cyrus was not some, you know, holier than thou, uh, you know, oh, this Jesus-like guy. But it did not matter because just like Cyrus advanced the agenda of God's people back in the time, they see Trump as today's Cyrus the Great. Before the 2016 presidential election, some evangelical Christians began comparing Donald Trump to King Cyrus, the biblical king who's credited with allowing Jews to return to Jerusalem from exile in the Babylonian Empire. The idea behind the comparison is that a non-believing leader can be used by God to enact policies that help advance the interest of believers, in this case, Christians and Jews. So he's the savior of us, uh, just like Cyrus was to the Jewish people. And now it's all about aligning with Israel. And I'll go into that in a second. But they believe that Trump is the guy who can advance the causes of evangelical Christians and, and thus the country. So when you have that belief that your God appointed Trump, the narcissism, the morality, the racism, the sexism, the xenophobia, none of that matters because, you know, Trump is their guy. Slightly, uh, slight so, irony here is that David Koresh, who was the leader of the Branch Davidians at Waco, called himself modern day Cyrus as well. I just remembered that. Uh, from <laughs> oh, wow. I actually did not know that. And so I, I love that you pointed that out. <laughs> Um, so the whole, you know, Trump is our guy, God chose him. Number two, evangelical Christians need to believe that they are oppressed and marginalized. Many of the white working class, especially evangelical voters, also believe their religion is under attack. Polling indicates 65% of working class white people believe Christian values are under attack. But among working class Christian evangelical white people, that number jumps. I remember feeling that way when I was little, when people were making fun of me for handing out, you know, here's how to get saved uh, tracks on the streets of New Orleans and all around on the mission trips. We back in that day, there was this feeling that the more marginalized and oppressed that you were, the holier that you were. Mm. So Trump has played into this fear of being oppressed and you know, your religious liberty will be stripped if you don't vote for Trump. He is kind of the answer to the evangelicals that feel victimized and marginalized. And it's Obama's fault. Eight years of, you know, gay marriage and and abortion rules and rights that were passed, uh, the Affordable Care Act, all of these types of ways that evangelical Christians can feel marginalized. So 
what's interesting is that in in 2016, more than 40% of evangelicals said that in recent years, it's become more difficult to be an evangelical Christian. So Trump agrees that their convictions are in danger. Their convictions have been violated. And, you know, we we have to fight back. We have to really get on the this bandwagon of the culture wars and fighting for traditional marriage between a man and a woman and fighting for the unborn child. And he plays into that. Even though the, 60, 65% of the country identifies as Christian, so they're not in the minority. Oh, gosh. it's And that's what's so interesting is that most of the victimization has been um, self-inflicted. Mm. So much of it is this fear rhetoric of, you know, there there have been evangelical Christians who sit around the table, and I've heard it said that fear is the most powerful motivator. Fear-mongering is what has activated this evangelical base to say, we are marginalized. We are in danger of becoming extinct. Therefore, we have to fight and we have to make sure that Trump stays in office so that he can save us. Mm. But what's most alarming, Alex, what I believe to be the third reason why most, the majority, 82% of evangelical Christians are so obsessed and loyal to Trump no matter what. So in, in evangelical Christianity, there is this obsession with understanding and becoming aware of God's will in real time. So that can lead to this blindness and this ignorance of you know flaws and issues with, with a certain leader. So they believe in a certain type of unfolding in history that will usher in the second coming of Christ. This may sound crazy to your <laughs> listeners, but I guarantee you, if you talk to an evangelical Christian, they will be able to tell you about this. Mm. There is this prophecy that evangelical Christians believe is in the Bible that the end times or the great Jewish migration to Israel will trigger the second coming of Christ, mm -hmm. or you may have heard it as the rapture. Yep. Okay, so evangelicalism is all about making sure that the countries that align with Israel and are on the right side of history as it relates to Israel mm -hmm. will have favor during the end times. So that's why it was such a big deal when you know Trump and the Republican Party, when they get involved in policy that relates to Israel and they relates the to embassy, Jerusalem. Absolutely. The president telling the heads of Israel, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the Palestinians today, he will recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. An unprecedented move breaking with U.S. policy since Israel was created. Despite warnings today from Turkey's President Erdogan, the kings of Jordan and Saudi Arabia, and all of America's NATO allies, that this could kill hopes for Middle East peace. And so it's really this kind of Zionistic belief that if these series of events happen, then we can actually control and trigger the second coming of Christ and, you know, quote, the end times. And it all starts with this unified Israel control with Jerusalem, you know, resulting in the construction of the temple going back to Jerusalem. When Trump is able to, you know, make these policies have such an impact in Israel. And Trump doesn't believe this, but he but he also he knows what he's doing. He knows that this he is He doesn't care. He probably doesn't believe it. He probably doesn't even 
understand the prophecies in the book of Revelation, but he knows that the more that he panders to the evangelical Christian base, that they are going to save him. He says, I am your savior. What about the, I mean, sort of a glaring kind of question here is if they believe, as you said earlier, that God put Trump in place and that he's in control, this is all planned. If Trump loses the election and Joe Biden gets in, ergo, God put Biden in place, no? (laughs) I love your logic. And unfortunately, (laughs) there's not a place for logic in, in evangelical Christianity. Uh, one would think so as a, you know, as an aware human that, wait, so why wouldn't they rally behind Joe Biden? Well, because if it doesn't fit into the narrative, Alex, then it is an act of Satan and an act of evil. So it's very nuanced, but your question is what pokes a hole in the whole deal. So then it would switch. The narrative you'll start seeing would switch to, okay, now Biden's in charge religious liberty, we're screwed. We're even more marginalized. We're even more oppressed. You know, I have to, I have, I love this quote in To Kill a Mockingbird. It's one of my favorite quotes. And it says, sometimes the Bible in the hand of one man is worse than a whiskey bottle in the hand of another. (laughs) There are just some kind of men who are so busy worrying about the next world that they've never learned to live in this one. Hmm. And a lot of what we're seeing, no matter who gets elected, it's not going to change the core belief and message of what the evangelical Christian church has become, Mm. which is this aggressive arm for bringing a Christian nation with Christian values, and I mean Christian with a little c, evangelical Christian values, to America so that we would be this kind of Zionist uh, country and it's terrifying. That said, I mean, you know, at the end of last year, Pew Research said that in the US, the decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. 65% Absolutely. of American adults describe themselves as Christian. That's down 12% over the last decade. Uh, absolutely. And honestly, I'm surprised it's not more. Right. Especially young people. Young people are leaving the evangelical church in droves. Well, that brings me on to my next question, actually. So a professor of religion told me Obama won partly because children of evangelical Christians voted for him because they had gay friends. They didn't agree with the war in Iraq. He represented their America. They may still believe like their parents believe. They may be maybe fiscal conservatives, but Obama represented what they, that they're, you know, what what they felt was um, their America today. Could this happen again? Oh, man. At this point, I think anything is possible. Mm. I think, um, look, I hope so. I hope the 70 million block of, you know, new voters and this young, uh, young base, I hope that they will rise up and I hope that they will vote. Uh, it's so incredibly important, you know, and what what breaks my heart is that, there's so much blindness in this entire uh, in this entire conversation. Mm. So many people they see the hypocrisy and they're sick of it. So m- maybe well-meaning Christians like me, who would normally have called myself a Christian, I don't even want to say that anymore. I don't identify as a Christian because of 
how that term has been perverted and twisted. And that's what happened, I think, with the children of these evangelical Christians who voted for Obama. They were tired of seeing the hypocrisy. And now it's out in plain view. What used to be very covert is now overt. Mm. When you have the savior of evangelical Christianity, Donald Trump, refusing to denounce white supremacy, being openly racist and immoral mm. and Again, the litany of, of things that we can talk about. What do you think is the future for Christianity in America as, as it relates to politics? Will, in, if we know that the, the, the um, number of people identifying as belonging, I think it's important to say this, this is maybe these statistics from Pew aren't about, you know, the number of people that believe in God is declining. Perhaps it is, we don't know, but it's the number of people that identify as belonging to a particular church is declining. Will a conservative politician even care about the evangelical vote in 15 years' time? I hope not, because when you mix religion and politics, I mean, you can look back over, you know, since the beginning of time, that's when things go sideways. Mm. I believe that change is possible. I think that the wool has been drawn over most of evangelical Christianity's eyes. I believe that there is this deception and it's that cognitive dissonance that anything that doesn't fit within my construct of belief, I, I'm not going to listen to. I'm not going to entertain it. But I think that as we get more and more down the line into the future, the jig has got to be up at some point. Mm. This type of hypocrisy that what we've seen from from the leader of what was supposed to be this moral majority party, it will take years, if not decades, for the church, for evangelical Christianity, for just Christianity to recover from what has become such a stain. And, and what breaks my heart, and this really hits me deeply, is that because of what's going on, especially in the, in the LGBTQ community, people think that they have to choose. They, they think that they have to, I see it all the time, they have to walk away from any type of relationship with God or higher power or something bigger than yourself. They have to walk away from that because they don't see themselves in it, in what's being blasted you know, on media with this is what Christianity looks like. So my hope is that people will find their own relationship with their higher power, regardless of what route that is. If it leads to kindness and if it leads to love and if it leads to a heightened awareness and a heightened consciousness of what we're all put on this earth to do, um, I think that is the way forward. What an interview to end on. Well, hush, I could I could go on for days and days. I hope this hasn't been depressing. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Lindsay. It's lovely to see you. you. It's lovely you to talk too. to you. And hopefully we'll see you soon. I know. I can't believe all of this, you know, came out of uh, my best friend at summer camp <laughs> since I was eight, your lovely wife, Courtney. So uh, I love it. Thanks for having me on. And of thanks course. to all of you who listened. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, Alex. What a story, Alex. It's extraordinary what she, she went through, you know, on her own at a, a pretty young age as well. But it's great that she's turned her life around and, you know, is very happy and content at the moment. 
yeah, I mean, it's pretty mind-blowing what happened to her, but then also, you know, what she told us, kind of the bigger picture, really, about the evangelical vote and stuff, which blew my mind. That wedding, eh? You were watching the stream, weren't you, I believe? I was, yeah. Courtney, my wife, went to actually went to it in person, was sitting in the car and um, watching the wedding, you know, up on the, well, she could see Lindsay and her wife and then the big screen behind them and all the rest of it. Me and my daughter, meanwhile, were at home watching the stream on YouTube and... Uh, had a few tears running down our face. Amazing. The stream's still on YouTube if anyone wants to Is it really? watch it. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. Bits of it. Didn't obviously sit there for an hour and a half watching it all. <laughs> why not? In my Pete? research why, for, why? This, <laughs> for this episode. Sorry, Lindsay. <laughs> Final episode. I always ask you this. Going to ask you again for the last time. What did you learn from the interview about Divided America? Well, you know what? We've tried over this series to the attempt is for us to sort of pull the lens out and try to grapple with the bigger political issues around a particular subject, which is what we've done with every episode. But we've also tried to get our interviewees to focus more tightly and tell their own stories in an attempt to sort of personalise those issues. And I think that Lindsay Kane does that in a way that's so sort of emotional. And you're right, it's like such a tragic story, but it's one that has ultimately has a really happy ending for Lindsay. But I think that... You know, it also has sort of warning signs as well. I mean, this is not just happened, you know, however many years ago to Lindsay, but what is happening all the time because of people's belief. They can sort of persecute people, essentially, which is kind of ironic considering uh, evangelical Christians are talking about feeling persecuted themselves. And we're one week away from the election when this goes out. What ways do you think the evangelical vote will influence the outcome? You know what? I think that this story gets to the heart almost of what Battleground was about, the whole the whole series. You know, in the case of LGBTQ rights, religion is probably the key reason for the divide. The motivating factor for those who oppose the rights of LGBT people who disagree with gay marriage, religion, religion is the beating heart of the culture war, which we've talked about. Um, it's the reason the right opposes a woman's right to choose. You know, I mean, to a lesser extent, I think um, evangelical Christianity sort of feeds into the other issues we've talked about. But I mean, look, there's a, a popular country song out here called Way Out Here by a guy called Josh Thompson. The lyrics go, our houses are protected by the good Lord and a gun. And you might meet them both if you show up here. Not welcome, son. <laughs> Brilliant. There were certain themes that came up again and again throughout these eight episodes. And looking past the election... Which of these issues do you think require urgent attention in, in terms of healing these divisions? I mean, this is this is my opinion, but I think that the fundamental thing that we we should address and probably the easiest one to address is this sort of misinformation uh, that social media channels kind of have been a massive part of kind of facilitating and this sort of spreading of stories that have no basis in fact, no basis in truth, um, this this spreading of pseudoscience and, and anti-science. I mean, it's dangerous, you know, it, it's just, it's dangerous and we can and should do something about that. That's the thing that gets me is like, you know, the <laughs> truth is actually not difficult to come by. It's just that it seems that people favour uh, the echo chamber of what they believe. There's always a blog and there's always somebody who will kind of fulfill that narrative for them. And I think that needs to be addressed. I mean, you know, the pandemic episode just keeps kind of, I guess, because it's so real and so, and, and it's happening right now. That's the one that sort of keeps coming back to my mind that like we, we need to do something about this misinformation. Every day 
I look online and I see misinformation, even on my own sort of Facebook feed among friends. And I think that's pretty dangerous. Another thing that came up again and again was generational change and how more progressive voices will be coming through even in um, this evangelical episode. Lindsay spoke about, and, and you spoke about, how younger evangelicals aren't necessarily falling behind Trump. When Trump was elected, that was three and a half years ago. So there are kids who have seen over the last three and a half years what's been happening and are now able to vote, many of whom will be voting against him. So um, it's interesting to see how much the Black Lives Matter movement and what's been happening and, and Trump's rhetoric on that and his kind of response to that has motivated young people as well. Well, we shall find out very soon. We will. So that's all for now. Or is it, Alex? It's not, Pete. <laughs> Go on. Without giving too much away, <laughs> um, we'll be back. We'll be back uh, fairly soon, in a few weeks, with um, a new podcast series. And this, for those who listened to, who came to this through uh, Dead Man Talking, which was our first uh, series, it's more along those lines. It's to do with crime and the legal system again. And we're actually going to have a trailer up for you soon. Um, which will tell you all about it. If you're fans of true crime, you're in for a treat. It says here. It says here. <laughs> but we really appreciate you listening to this series and we appreciate all your support and messages over the last month. And um, that's it. Bye, Pete. Bye, Al. Speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. Battleground has been presented by me, Alex Hannaford. The producer and sound engineer was Peter Sale. Our theme music was Three Girls Sitting Across the Bar by Hidden Twin. Thanks again to Lindsay Kane for today's episode, but also to Jose Hanise, Dr. Victoria Herman, Scott Lewis, Megan Stabler, Stuart Stevens, Nana Jamfi, and Dr. Craig Spencer for their interviews in previous episodes. We're really grateful for your time. Also wanted to thank again Ema Duffy and Donna Rush for their help with the recordings on several of these episodes. Battleground is a DMT media production for Audio Boom.